your Bibles, if you would, and let us dive into part four of our series on the ancient future church. Father, thank you so much for the ministry and the activity and the presence of the Holy Spirit that is with us. Father, we thank you that you have called us together and you have called us to gather. You have invited us to this place. Lord, this is not a moment that that we just treat haphazardly. We respond to your call and your your invitation to come to your table and to come and receive from you. We take this seriously today. And we ask, Father, today for the anointing and the empowerment. We ask for the wisdom and the revelation of your Holy Spirit to be upon every single one of us as we sit under the proclamation of the word of God today in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to give a quick review, and we're going to do this on a regular basis because so much information is being covered. So for those of you who have missed any of our messages, you can get those on our podcast, which is available on our website. Four weeks ago, Jonathan kicked off our series on the church, and he essentially talked about what the church is and what the church is not and a great foundational setting of the table for the messages that were to come. And there are two definitions that I want to make mention of in the event that you did not hear this message or in the event that you might have forgotten. Number one, the church is an appointed gathering. It is an appointed gathering of named people in particular places. These are all just pregnant words. Named people, particular places who practice a kingdom-oriented lifestyle. All right, number two, the church is an alternative community. What does that mean? We're an alternative community. It means that we stand over and against the culture of this world. It means, as Jonathan was speaking of today, that we are a people that come to live in God's kingdom, and we are people that somehow through the ministry and the power and the grace of the Holy Spirit, we participate with him in bringing that kingdom to bear on this world and God's kingdom is absolutely and completely other than and different than the kingdom of this world. So if we ever find ourselves trying to accomplish kingdom ends and kingdom objectives using the wisdom and the means and the methodologies of this world, it ought to cause us to pause and just to reflect and to think about that and to submit that to God's spirit. Because most often when God's kingdom comes to bear on a people or a place, it looks radically different than the way that we think that it should look. And it looks radically different than the way that the world is causing its kingdom to advance in the world. So the church is not... I loved this. The church is not a club. The church is not just an association that is gathered around shared interests. We love the fact that you guys get together around shared interests, but that is not the church. Read all the same books that you want. Go to all the same sports events that you want. Go take all the hikes that you want. But the church, by design, is gathered around differences, not around similarities. Number two, church is not the world's moral police. The church is not a self-help group or a means for our own personal growth. That's, that's not what the church is. 
That's not what the church is designed to be. And then finally, Jonathan mentioned that the church is not solely a resource to fill in the gaps of our spiritual development. All right, the next week we had Dr. Chris Green in, and he talked with us about being a prophetic community. And perhaps one of the things that I've heard from a lot of people that stood out to them is the fact that we all, as individuals in Christ, are called to be a prophetic people. That the office and the ministry of the prophet is not reserved for a special elite few. That every single one of us are called to walk in the prophetic dimension and dynamic of God in his kingdom. A couple of thoughts here. That as an alternative community who witnesses to the kingdom of God, that we're all called to be a prophetic people. That we're called to bear and carry the word of the Lord in such a manner that it awakens the activity of God in one another and in the world. Listen to that message if you missed it. It was outstanding. Last week, I veered off the course. The three of us got together and we mapped out a beautifully engineered path and plan. And then Dan came to me and said, I heard you preach something different than what we said that we were going to preach on. Yeah, I I did. I did. I I just do that to keep these guys on their toes, man. All right, so, (laughs) did you say it did? Jonathan lives on his toes. I'm good for you, man. I really am. I'm like like your constant ropes facilitator. You just never know. You just never know. I'm going to have you leading like blindfolded and, and everything. All right, so last week we talked about something that I just outright said, this is, this is a little fuzzy, it's a little messy, and it's a little difficult. We're going to acknowledge that right off the bat. And that is the fact that God has called the church fundamentally to be a new covenant community of people. That he has called us to enter into a new kind of relationship with him. It is a new covenant relationship with him. And as a result, he has called us into a new covenant community with one another. Now that's difficult. It's difficult for a number of reasons. Number one, because I don't intuitively see my brothers and sisters in Christ as brothers and sisters. That's not natural. It's not natural. We naturally see each other by our function or by our position or by our title, or by our similarities, or by what we wear, or by how cool we are, or by whether or not we have the same things in common. We naturally, if we're not careful, we naturally see people by what they can do for us, is what Jonathan talked about on pragmatism. That is not what the church is. We are ontologically a family, which means that our essence as people that are created to be a new covenant community is the very essence of our relationship is family. Now that gets messy because by saying that, two things open up. Number one, we are, by using that language, we are connected automatically to language that has potential for pain, right? Because of, unless, there's, unless there's somebody in this room that can say, I had the perfect family growing up, perfect family, perfect Never in argument, never got my feelings hurt, never disappointed, never rejected, never overlooked, never had that happen. Well, then I can use the word family and it'd be completely safe. But if you fit in the other category of people who may not have had the best experiences, by me saying family that automatically has the potential of touching on post-traumatic emotions from awful experiences, whether those experiences were meant 
to be had or not, whether they, were, whether they took place in reality or whether they were just perceived by you or by me, using the word family is it's dangerous. But here's, here's my thesis on this. I believe so much that the, that the scripture is explicit in using this language and it's not language that we should just forfeit over. I believe, in other words, that the word family is worth us fighting for. And it's dangerous. And we talked about some of the facts last week that I really don't know how to reconcile a lot of these things. Because if we, if we examine closely, there are scriptures that Jesus gives us that allude to the idea that our relationship and our covenant, our covenant kingdom family actually supersede our relationship to our biological family. And that's also dangerous because that's been used and manipulated and abused to hurt people. And I think we just got to just spot that right off the get-go. And I think, as Jonathan mentioned a few weeks ago, we have, to, we have to walk graciously and humbly and delicately into the scriptures to say, God, we need your help to navigate what it means to be in a spiritual family called together by the covenant of Jesus that supersedes even our natural loyalty to our biological family. And I'll just tell you right now, I'm not there. I'm not there. It's not natural for me. I naturally think about protecting. I naturally think about defending, providing for. I naturally think about uh, releasing grace to my children, to my spouse. That is not a natural muscle or attitude or mindset that I have towards my spiritual family. And that, am I the only one who's going to be honest with that in here today? It's not natural. And that's why it requires the power of the Holy Spirit to transform us because it is so unnatural. All right, so now that's all review. Let's move forward. This is actually going to be a New Covenant community part two. All right, now as I was thinking through this, there are over 50 references in the New Testament alone that guide and direct how we are to relate to one another in this new community. You know them as the one another's. How many of you know about the one another's in scripture? The scripture tells us explicitly how we are to live in this new family. See, God didn't just sire this family, throw us into it, and then walk away kind of like a Lord of the Flies. He says, listen, I'm calling you into my family, and my family has values. My family has practices. There are certain ways that you're to operate in my family in order to help my family be healthy. And my guess is to the degree that we actually live these family rules out, we're going to see less and less hurt and offense in our families. Things like accepting one another. Things like caring for one another. Loving one another. Things like greeting one another. You know, they're actually commanded in the scriptures to greet one another. Like, honestly, I'll just be, this is, this is like pastor confession time. Honestly, the idea of having a greeting ministry in a church is crazy to me. That would be like me saying that we have to, like Christy, we have guests coming over tonight, and here's your job description. I need you to make sure that you open the door and be friendly and smile and actually like to have people in your home and greet them, say hello to them. That, that's crazy. That's absurd. But yet we have that in our churches. Why? Because we don't follow the family rules that the scripture lays out. He commands us to greet one another. 
to pay attention to one another, to, to welcome one another as we would welcome Jesus himself in our midst. Family rules. So there's a lot of family rules we could talk about that help to guide and govern the reality that we are called into a new covenant family. But today, I'm gonna to talk about one. And one that I think perhaps has the most bearing on setting us up for success and one that I just think prophetically is where a lot of us are at in this spiritual family. I'm gonna to talk today about forgiving one another. Forgiving one another. It's been amazing to me over the past several months, several encounters that I've had, both with new people that the Lord is joining to our family and people that have been in the house for quite some time and hearing the level of hurt, injustice, real injustice, the level of betrayal, the level of trust broken, disappointment, rejection, being overlooked. And, and I want to, before we get any further, here's what I want to do. I want to, I want to acknowledge that the pain of those experiences and the heartache of that story is real. It is real. We're not going to gloss it over. We're not going to somehow try to manipulate this and put it back on you. I want to just say as a pastor, and that may or may not mean anything to you, but as a pastor, I want you to know I am deeply, deeply sorry. And I mourn with you and I grieve with you for the way that spiritual leaders or spiritual family members or spiritual situations have wounded your heart. I grieve with you today. I've, I've grieved through this process of preparing. Because, again, the slippery slope of calling the church the family of God is then we give access to people to hurt us in deep places. It's easy if we just call it a gathering place. It's easy if we call it an ecclesia. It's easy if we call it those things because we inoculate ourselves in some way from getting hurt. But when I say you are my brother, it means that I put an expectation on you. And when you say that I am your brother, it means you put an expectation on me. And when, when you open your heart emotionally to trust in a people, to be a spiritual family, it means that you are allowing yourself the risk of being hurt deeply. And some of you in this room have experienced that. And some of you, it has, it has literally locked you up for years. It has locked you up for years. Some of you are still living in the same space and time and as you were when, when you were mishandled. And my deep hope and prayer today is that every single one of us would be awakened afresh to the love and the grace and the hope and forgiveness of God and that we would have revelation where we are currently walking in unforgiveness. And that is my prayer, that the Holy Spirit would shine light on these areas of our lives and that we would be equipped, at least in a beginning phase of how we can participate with the grace and the forgiveness of God to extend that to others, to walk in freedom. Because here's what I know. We could engineer the most masterful theological PowerPoint series we could lace that thing with videos. and we, But here's the thing. If, if we are harboring unforgiveness with the people of God, all of the theology that we tell you about what the church is supposed to be according to the scriptures will mean nothing. It will mean absolutely nothing unless we say, Lord, touch the parts of my heart 
and my memories and my emotions and the judgments that I have formed knowingly and unknowingly towards the people that hurt me that I was supposed to be safe with. All right, so um, I also want you to know that I'm taking about 80% of the material that I'm preaching today from one of the classes that we're starting in October. How's that for being strategic? And this is coming straight from Dr. Jim and Val Bixler's discipleship curriculum on Living Oaks Restoration and Discipleship Ministry. Uh, Literally, we could take about eight weeks on the two sessions that they have on forgiveness. Probably longer, right guys? And and I'm going to try to condense all this as a teaser into 30 minutes. So good luck. All right. Uh, Let me just say this as a personal testimony. I met with a young man earlier this week and he asked me, He asked me a really powerful question that I don't think a lot of people have asked me over the years. He said, have you ever experienced hurts in the church and how did you handle them? That was a brilliant question. And I was immediately reminded of 10 years ago, the Lord brought a young man into my life just sovereignly. And I was walking through at that point some pretty pretty horrific pain. I've been walking through my own set of very personal betrayals or what I perceived as betrayals. And, and I was beginning to shut my heart off from people. I felt myself doing it. Like I was consciously shutting my heart off from people. And that might not mean anything to you, but I can tell you that that's not who I am. Uh, if, if, if you know me for any amount of time, you'll know that I'm, I'm a pretty open-hearted, dive in, let's get past the superficial. I want deep relationships. Dan always makes fun of me. He goes, most people snorkel or hang out in a boat. Jay Duncan wants to get his scuba gear on and get into people's hearts. Like, but I found myself not wanting to do that. I found myself avoiding those kinds of conversations, keeping people at an arm's length. And I just felt how unnatural that was. And then the Lord brought a young guy in my life by the name of David Galvon. I didn't even know the kid. And as we just began meeting faithfully, he said, man, the Lord has brought this material into my life. And um, if, if you're open, I want to share with you some of these thoughts on forgiveness. And man, I sat there and listened to this guy. And I went home and I would take some of the principles he would show me and I'd pull out my journal and hours upon hours I would identify people's names. I would go through exact specific situations and events. I would identify every known uh, emotion that happened as a result of those offenses. I would identify by the help of the Holy Spirit judgments that I had made against those people. And I would, I would cancel every debt. I would make every forgiveness. And then I would ask for any vow that I had made inside of my heart to be broken. And over and over, as I just began walking faithfully through this process, I felt my heart become alive again. Who I am here today, the relationship I have even with my own spouse, guys. I'm telling you, we're, we're not immune from us experiencing this with our own children or own spouses or our closest friends. This has literally, I'm, I'm not exaggerating, this has saved my life. It has saved my life in ministry, my life in my marriage, and my, my relationship with my closest friends. So very quickly, uh, what is unforgiveness and, and defense? I'm just going to gloss over this very, very quickly. Um, first of all, we have to understand that offense is a process, that it, it grows as we ignore it or we don't tend to it or we kind of like, we like to stuff it. We like to say, oh yeah, I forgive that person. Let me just tell you right now, if someone has hurt you deeply and you just say, oh, I forgive them and you walk on, you have not forgiven them. Forgiveness takes meticulous work. 
I mean, just think about physically. It's one thing if you get scraped and, you know, you're not bleeding like I do with my kids. Oh, you're fine. Come on, run on. But if you experience internal trauma on a physical level and you go to a surgeon, they go, hey, you're fine, sport, run along. No, no, that, that doesn't fly. The deeper the pain, I'm telling you, the longer and the harder and the more detailed the work is that you have to do. And a, oh, I forgive that person, absolutely does not suffice. Let me, this, this might liberate you and it might scare you, but there are some situations, one situation, that, that just one event might take literally weeks to months for the Holy Spirit to help you unpack in your heart and in your mind, in your memory, in your emotions, in your judgments. Here's what we need to understand, that the closer the person is to you, the deeper the wound goes, Right? We need to understand the younger that you are when this happens, the more open your heart, your emotions, and your mind are, the deeper the pain goes. We need to understand that the more frequent this happens. It's one thing if somebody hits me once, but if they hit me over and over and over and over again, the deeper the pain of the impact of the wound goes. And then we also have to consider severity. All right, so we have how close the person is, we have how young we are, we have frequency, and we have severity. And you put all those together, and we're talking about being locked up if we don't engage with God on a deep level to allow him to help us forgive. So offense is a process. It begins as an offense, it grows into an unforgiveness. Most of the times this is unconscious. And then from our unforgiveness, we begin moving in resentment where we begin resenting this person or the very mention of this person. We begin resenting the person's presence. Their very name begins to agitate us. You know when you're operating in offense or unforgiveness or resentment, when emotion automatically rises to the surface when somebody even mentions the name of the person that hurt you. You know something's going on in there. And if we're not careful, offense will grow into unforgiveness, which will grow into resentment, which will grow into bitterness, which is like a poisonous root that defiles us, and it will cause death. Now, now physically, scientifically, it will cause physical death. Guys, there are scientific studies that are linked to cancers and terminal diseases that are connected with unforgiveness, but it will cause death to your relationships. It is not uncharacteristic If I have an unforgiveness with my brother here, it will even affect my relationships with people that were not even associated with that person. Because if I'm harboring hatred and poison and toxicity in one area of my life, it's gonna bleed out into every other area of my life. And so I I need to contextualize this specifically towards the church. I know, I know this, this, Once we take these principles, this will affect every area of our lives. But as we're entering into the series on the church, I want to submit to you today. Hear this, hear truth and scripture and say, Lord, how have spiritual leaders? Guys, it could be me. I I recognize that. And all I can do is be humble. All I can do is say, God, teach me, show me, reveal to me. All I can do is repent to you. And all I can do is say, have mercy on me and do not allow my shortcomings and immaturities to be a stumbling block to your freedom. Because the word offense literally means a stumbling block or a trap. It is a trap. Events are neutral. 
You guys have heard me preach on this for years. Events are neutral. Here's what I mean. I walk in the door, Mike sees me, Mike waves at me, I'm focused on something else, I don't see Mike. That's a neutral event, all right? But he sees that, and the enemy wants to put in his path a scandalizo, an offense. He wants to put in Mike's path a stumbling block. He wants to put a trap in Mike's path to go, can you believe him? Can you believe that here he is, all that you've, all that you've done for him, he's gonna look dead at you and not even acknowledge, who does he think he is? And all of a sudden, the enemy sows an opportunity for an offense to come, okay? An offense is not natural. In other words, we don't, you, don't, you don't have to walk in offense. The more that we mature and grow in Christ and in our discernment, the Holy Spirit will begin to show to you, don't take that bait, don't touch that, don't walk there, don't touch that, don't go there, that's an offense. That belief is an offense. And as we just, and listen, it feels good to nurture offenses for a season. It does, it feels good. Mike might go, you know what? I'm just going to walk right on this thing and and just get, you know, and just nurse that offense for a while. But in the end, an offense or a trap that is untended to and unhealed will lead to death. Causes of offense. I'm going to just blast through this. But as I blast through this, I also want to give some legitimacy and some validation to some of you in this room. Because some of you, I believe I'm speaking prophetically now by the Spirit. Some of you have experienced these things. And some of you have, Holy Spirit, some of you have been made to feel wrong for experiencing the pain of some of the things that I'm going to mention. And what I want to do, now I understand, I don't know every situation, I understand that there are always There are always places where we can own something. I understand that there are multiple vantage points of every experience. But what I want to do is I want to say that where you did, in fact, experience some of these things and people try to put it on you, I want to take that off of you. And I want to liberate you today. So here's a couple of causes of offense. Number one, unmet expectations. Guys, we could spend a whole service on getting down into the weeds on unmet expectations. Here's what I want to say about unmet expectations. Number one, guys, this is going to help you for your marriages. I promise you. Most of our conflict comes out of unmet expectations. And most of those unmet expectations are on me because, A, I did not even know that I had those expectations. So if you're walking into any kind of relational system, a marriage, a dating relationship, friendships, business arrangements, churches, and you're not aware of some of the expectations that you carry into that relationship. I expected them to text me every day. They didn't text me every day. I expected them to call me back when I called them within at least two minutes. If I text you, I expect you to at least text me back within at least five minutes, and they didn't do that. You have to be aware of those expectations. Number two, you have to communicate those expectations. You have to, you have to give You have to give language. You have to name the expectation. It has to become concrete so that you can submit that expectation. I might say, Jonathan, if I text you, you got to text me back in five minutes. And he might say, I don't agree with that expectation. That is unreasonable. And then I have to go back and go, I have two choices. I can double down on my expectation, which sets me up for disappointment. Or I can say, maybe that is 
an unreasonable expectation. Jonathan, what do you think would be a reasonable expectation? And now we enter into mutuality and mutual submission to one another. This is why we need the body of Christ. Because left to myself, all of my expectations are right and wonderful and perfect and grand and totally appropriate. Right? Okay, so I have, to, I have to identify my expectations. I have to communicate them. I have to submit them. I have to think through them to see whether or not they're reasonable or not. Unmet expectations is one of the reasons why a lot of us get hurt by offense. Number two, rejection, either real or perceived. And guys, listen, we could go into a lot as it relates to the spirit of rejection. What happens is as we are rejected over and over again or as we perceive rejection or expect rejection, we will actually begin to create a cycle of self-fulfilling prophecies, whereas we actually become rejection. We walk into situations so expecting somebody to reject us that we actually make them reject us. Dude, you're doing it right now. Right? You see what I'm saying? Y'all act like you don't know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Abandonment. Abandonment. Some of you guys are in situations where you were going through something and you needed the people of God. You needed them to reach out to you. You, For whatever reason, you needed them to reach out to you. And no one reached out to you. And it left you feeling alone. It left you feeling abandoned, uncared for, unsupported, and helpless. And we need the power of the Lord to come in and help us forgive that. Neglect, which is not properly caring for or showing love and affection. I've had people come, sit down with me, Pastor, I need to have a meeting with you. Okay, great. Christian and I would sit down with people. Man, we just feel like nobody loves me in Antioch Church. I feel like nobody cares about me. I feel like nobody cares what I'm going through. Whether real or perceived, they're experiencing neglect. And we need to allow the power of the Lord to touch that. Betrayal, this is a big one. When someone takes your confidence and breaks it, you share something with them and they expose it. This, this right here is how betrayal plays out for me. It's when I expect someone to be there for me in my time of need and I perceive that they failed me or they let me down or they were not present for me in the way that I expected them to be. And then I deem that as betrayal. So these are some examples of things that cause offense. How does unforgiveness affect our relationship with the offender? It makes us a slave to the offender. It turns us into victims where we begin to believe that we're powerless until that thing in your life is healed. In some spiritual dynamic, you need to understand that you're continuing to give power to the offender. You're continuing to empower that church, that pastor, that church member, that sister, that brother. You're continuing to live your life at the mercy of what that person does or does not do. It causes you to operate in judgment which we know is a sin. It causes us to judge not just the person who offended us. It causes us to judge every person who reminds us of that person. I realize that as a spiritual leader, and sometimes I really need the help of the Holy Spirit to acknowledge this, I, I, I would get slimed. And I realize they, they were talking to their previous pastor. You understand what I'm saying? I understand this is not me. They're not upset at me. But guys, listen. After 20 years of doing this, I've had to work to get to a place where I recognize this has nothing to do with me. This has everything to do with pastor. It could be like 20 years ago, and they're still holding on to that. Now every pastor 
is untrustworthy. Now every pastor, now every church member, now every Christian, now every person cause us to walk in that level of judgment. Okay, my God, what do we do with all this? I, I <laughs> Can you sing that table altar song again, Jonathan? <laughs> Seriously, guys, I'm scratching like one-tenth, maybe one-twentieth of this. All right, let's, let's dive into the word here for a couple of minutes. Um, number one, go with me if you would to Matthew chapter 10, verse eight. We're gonna do like, what's that thing in Bible, Bible classes where it's like, Sword drills. You ever do sword drills? Yeah. Matthew chapter 10, verse 8. Many of you may, I've preached on this in a different context before, but in Matthew chapter 10, verse 8, here's what we find. Jesus is sending his disciples out on their first missionary journey. He is sending them out to proclaim the message of the kingdom. The kingdom is here. There's a new wine that's available. There's a new way of life. By the way, a little disclaimer there. Chrissy, I'm sure all that stuff about wine and notes, it's stuff that she's read, I'm sure. Right? Or like seen in videos. <laughs> we like some wine, don't we, girl? We ain't scared. <laughs> okay, so. <laughs> I'm going to walk you through how to forgive me later. <laughs> Jesus saying, I'm bringing a new kingdom. And he's like, here, proclaim the gospel, heal the sick, cast out devils. And then he says right here in Matthew chapter 10, verse 8, he says, everything that you have freely received from me, give it away. Give it away freely. Now, now I'm, I'm kind of setting all this up. Like that right there is, is the main crux of how we're to live our lives in this new community. How do I give forgiveness? How do I forgive that person who betrayed me, abandoned me? How do I, how do, I do that? Okay. Not easy, but simple. Okay. Take inventory of the liberal goodness of God expressed to us and how he has never withheld forgiveness from anything that we've done. Never. And actually sit in that long enough where the depths of the depravity of our lives kiss the goodness of God that is expressed in his forgiveness, bought by the blood of Jesus at the cross, and and literally cloak ourselves in the forgiveness of the Lord, so much so that his forgiveness begins to seep in and penetrate and overwhelm every offense that we're holding on to, so that in his grace and power, we can take what he has freely given to us, and we can then distribute that to those who desperately need it. Look at this verse right here. I know, Dan, I, I, I got to work. Psalm 103. Psalm 103. This one is great. Look at verse 8 through 12. These are scriptures, guys. Man, if we're dealing with offense or if we're dealing with the lie of the enemy that we cannot receive forgiveness, we need to soak in these scriptures. Psalm 103, verse 8. It, yeah, I, no, no worries. The Lord is compassionate and gracious. Look at this, slow to anger, slow to anger. This right here, these are characteristics of somebody who walks in forgiveness. Are you quick to anger? Or are you slow to anger? Because if we're harboring resentment and unforgiveness, we're quick to anger. But if we're walking in the fullness of the forgiveness of God, we'll find that things do not, they don't, they don't light that fuse as quickly. We're slow 
to anger. We do not har- he, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. Now let's just stop right there. How many of you, just take inventory of your top five sins and then share them with your neighbor. <laughs> take inventory of your top five sins. Guys, listen, I could take inventory of my top five sins in the past 24 hours. Does he, what if God treated you as your sins deserve? Internally, emotions, sins of omission, sins of commission, speech, slander, lying, pride, arrogance, selfishness, gluttony, you name it, right? What if he treated us as our sins deserve? And that's the lie of the enemy. You know why most of us stay away from God is because somewhere deep inside of us, we believe that he's gonna treat us as our sins deserve, but he does not. He does not. How can I release someone who did something so vile to me that somehow by the miracle of God, he did not give you what you deserve? And now you can be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect and you can operate out of the power of the new wine of this kingdom that does not give to others what they deserve. It is supernatural. This is a powerful verse, guys. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Jonathan, come on up here. I will talk for another two hours, I promise. Psalm 130. Look at Psalm 130, verses 1 through 4. Similar, but another variation of this. Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ear be attentive to my cry for mercy, for mercy. If you kept a record of sins, who could stand? Think about it. Think about it. My list is long, y'all. If you kept a record of sins, you know what? You know what perhaps greater than supernatural signs and wonders And I believe in those and I love those and I want those, but I'm here to tell you today, perhaps what is as miraculous is that every time I come into God's presence, I have no fear that he's standing there with this massive list and saying, well, this is cool. You can ask me about all these things, but first we need to get all these things right, buddy. Doesn't do it. Guys, think about it. (laughs) Doesn't do it. y'all we screwed up we we're jacked up man i'm telling you think about it he has he has every right to sit down and just pull his book out hey on september the 15th 1978 you did this and on 19 i mean he just it just piles up and the freedom that i have to walk through the blood of jesus and come to the father and never be reminded of one thing one thing never reminded never thrown in my face that is a miracle it's powerful I'm here to tell you today that if when you come to the presence of the Lord if you're reminded of past sins or mistakes it is not the voice of God that is throwing that in your head that is the voice of your accuser I, we gotta talk next week about maybe how do we forgive 
I mean, part A, yes, graciously, deeply, thoroughly invite the power of the reconciling forgiveness of God to touch every area of your life. I'm just going to wrap this up. Here's, here's part B. Number one, identify the event. And listen, for one person, there may be multiple. So what do we do? We say, Holy Spirit, would you show me the most prominent event that is harboring unforgiveness in my heart right now? What is, what is the one thing? And listen, if I were to ask you this right now, I mean, like times and places and spaces, environments and colors and smells, I mean, it would come back to you. If you are harboring resentment and unforgiveness in an area and, I, and you say, Holy Spirit, show me the, show me the tap root. Boom, it will, it will appear. And you need to analyze that event. Analyze it. And you need to sit down. And number one, you need to forgive that event. That moment in time. And we have to understand that wherever there is an offense, it always touches our emotions. Here's the beautiful thing that Bixlers have created this list of emotions. Belittled. Shamed. Embarrassed. Disrespected. Angry abandoned, abused. I'm like, yes, I felt all those things. Giving language to the emotion that was, that was infected by the event and presenting that to the Lord. God, heal my emotions. And I forgive this person and this event and these actions that have hit me in this way. But we have to understand that emotions actually just reveal what our mind already believes. If you're angry because of what somebody did, there's something that you believe. There's some judgment that you made against that person or people like that person or situations like that situation. And there's a judgment, there's a belief system. And this is what gets us locked in. And this is actually where we need the grace of God to forgive us. God, I formed a judgment against that church, against all churches, against that brother, against that pastor, against that leader. I formed a judgment. And you need to look at that squarely and say, God, please forgive me for judging your people, for judging your leader, for judging your family in this way. And now I cancel this judgment and I release it to you. And I forgive them for the judgment that I harbored. Next, we need to understand that sometimes, whether we know it or not, we create vows. This is where we say things like, I will never, I will always, I will never. Those are our vows. I will never step foot in a church again. That's a vow. I will never volunteer for a church again. I will never be taken advantage again. I will never touch a drop of alcohol because my father, you see what I'm saying? That's a vow. And when you say, God, there are vows that I made, there are promises that I made that are actually holding me. And, and fastening me to an offense and I break those vows and I ask for your forgiveness. Guys, if you want more and we need more, we gotta go check this class out in October because they walk us through so much. They have a 15 step process of how to forgive. They have, they have 20 bullet points that describe what forgiveness actually is. I'm gonna say this last thing, I'll be done. Okay, listen. When you forgive someone, you are not saying that what they did was okay. You are not saying, you are not justifying the actions that were done against you. What you are doing is a saying, but God, I'm taking ownership. I'm taking ownership of how I feel. 
I'm taking ownership of how I responded. I'm taking ownership of the judgments that I made. I'm taking ownership of my unforgiveness and I forgive them and I entrust them to you for you to deal with them. But I am not gonna be held prisoner by them any longer. Guys, I am praying for you and I am praying that, that this would just awaken. It would spark something inside of us that helps us to hear the other things that God wants to tell us about what it means to be this alternative community bearing witness to the resurrection of Jesus and the kingdom of God. Let's stand to our feet this morning. I felt like the micro machine man today. <laughs> That's a massive throwback. With open hands, Jesus, we say, we're gonna posture our heart at this table today to receive deeply of the forgiveness of God. God, we thank you that you do not have a list of our sins because if you did, God, we would not be able to stand. We would, we would, we would just not be able to bear up against it. And today we wanna to say thank you. Thank you that by the blood of Jesus, you have liberally poured out you have canceled every debt. You have deemed us righteous. You have cast our offenses away. We are guiltless before you. God, we thank you. And Father, today I pray, number one, for a fresh, overwhelming revelation of the kindness, the goodness, and the grace and the forgiveness of God that overwhelms us. Number two, God, I pray that as we come to this table, Holy Spirit, that you would launch us on a journey, utilizing the people, the resources, the ministries, the scriptures that are available to us, and the guidance of the Holy Spirit to be as specific as possible to walk in true and utter forgiveness, to release our debtors and those who have transgressed against us, to cancel their debt to set them free, to entrust them to you, to entrust ourselves to you. Today, as we come to this table, we ask for grace and we ask for power by your spirit. Antioch, I'd like to invite you to come to the